There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, uh, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune uh, to bring him down to, to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we, uh, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire uh, somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves to an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready and waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Go, get ready, 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, as he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and, and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by the night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered uh, the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray this morning. Our great and wonderful God, Lord, we just thank you for this day and we, we ask that you would bless the ministry of your word. We ask that Jesus Christ would be uh, made manifest here today in our midst. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be, uh, would be present to attend to the preaching uh, of the word of the Lord. Uh, we just ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a, a, a humor, somewhat humorous, uh, obviously made-up story 
uh, about a man who prayed to the Lord uh, when floodwaters were coming. He prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, deliver me from these coming floodwaters. And so he was waiting in his house and and as he prayed, uh, a fire truck drove by, a rescue vehicle, and they knocked on the door and they said, said, come with us, we'll get you out of here. And the man said, no, no, the Lord will deliver me. Next, as the waters began to rise, uh, uh, again, some rescuers came by on a boat this time because vehicles couldn't get by and, and, and the man was still in his house and, and the waters were coming in and beginning to flood and they said, come quick, jump on our boat. Uh, get, we'll get you out of here. And the man said, no, 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 don't worry, God will rescue me. Well, the floodwaters came finally in their fullness and uh, the man was left up on his roof, the waters still rising and, and a helicopter flew overhead and the Coast Guard dropped the man down and they said, come, get on board. Uh, let's get out of here. We'll take you uh, to safety. And the man said, no, 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 God will rescue me. Well, the man drowned And he went up into heaven, and again, this is a fanciful story, but he was asked, uh, he asked the Lord, well, God, why didn't you rescue me? And the Lord said, well, what do you think the guy in the vehicle, the guy in the boat, and the guy in the helicopter was for? Now, that's a somewhat humorous story, but it makes a larger point. God often uses means in his sovereignty. What What do we mean by that? God often, in carrying out His will, in doing things according to His sovereign plan, often does things through the hands of other people. He puts people in the right place at the right time. He, he stirs the course of a human events so that people are where they need to be to do at the right time according to the will of God. Often the hand of, of God's directing the universe is, is unseen. There are times where God intervenes directly and we go, this is an act of God. This is a miracle. But, but most of the time, the majority of the time, the way God governs the accomplishment of His will is through means, through other people, through other things that happen, whether human people or whether um, just other uh, events in life or even through things that happen in nature. We call God's governing and directing things according to His sovereign will, His providence. That God is in control of all things. That God in His providence governs the course of human events. Everything that happens in this creation happens according to the will of God. He either directly accomplishes it or He allows it to happen so that nothing that occurs catches by God by surprise, and nothing that occurs is outside of His guiding hand, outside of His providence. Providence is His guiding and directing things to their appointed end, to the God-determined appointed end or goal. We often don't understand why God does things. We often don't understand why God allows things, particularly uh, when it's evil or when it's tragedy. But nevertheless, the Scriptures teach that God is in control over all things. In this passage, we have God exercising control over all things without actually showing up. What I mean by that is God is not mentioned by name in this passage and and we do not see any reference to saying, well, now God did this. 
But we are to know that the unfolding of these events happens according to God's providential plan. If you look in verse 11 of chapter 23, we see the promise to Paul from the Lord Jesus. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the fact about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is a promise from God. Paul, you will go to Rome and testify about me. You can imagine Paul in this prison. Remember, as he was going up to Jerusalem, there were many people worried about him going there, afraid that he would die there. And he gets down there, or he gets up to Jerusalem, and God says to him in the prison, don't worry, you'll go to Jerusalem. And, or excuse me, to Rome. And what we have in the unfolding of this passage is God is keeping His Word. God is doing what He had promised to do that, that Paul will get to, to Rome even with people trying to kill Him. And how does God intervene? Now, He could have struck these plotters with lightning. He could have come down and shone a bright light on them and said, don't kill my servant Paul. That would have been just as much the providence of God. But God in His sovereignty uses people to accomplish His will. And in this passage, He uses two individuals in particular. First, Paul's nephew, and second, uh, the Roman tribune. So first, God can providentially use other individuals as He uses Paul's nephew. Now we don't often recognize, we certainly don't see ahead of time what God is going to do when it comes to God's providence. And sometimes even after the fact, we're not sure why God did this or did that or how God could allow this or that. But we do know that God uses individuals and people even to accomplish His will. So the Jews here in this passage, they plot to kill Paul. Look at verses 14, or excuse me, 12 through 14. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. When they were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Paul's enemies here, they are, they are so burning with anger. They, they want to kill Paul. But how much anger do you have to have in you that, that you would vow, I will not eat or drink until Paul is dead, until we've killed him? I mean, this isn't just a promise, well, we're going to get him. This is, we are not going to touch food and water at all, until we kill Paul. You can imagine it's, it's pretty urgent here that they kill Paul rather quickly. Vows are extremely serious things. This is why in Scripture, Jesus says, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We should be people who are trustworthy. We shouldn't have to add extra vows so that people know they can believe us. We shouldn't have to be like the kids on the playground, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I promise I, I absolutely mean this. Yes be yes and no be no. But in the Old Testament, you could make vows. And, and vows were binding. 
It says in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 23, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. So shall your lips, so shall, you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God that you have promised, uh, what you have promised with your mouth. Uh, vows are, are more than just saying, well, I'm, I'm gonna do this. They're saying, I'm absolutely, I am binding myself to the Lord that I will do this. And so when you make a vow, when you make a vow to do something that's, that's uh, not sinful, the kinds of vows that are okay to make, you, you are upping that vow. So that if you don't do what you said, you've sinned before God. If I say today that I'm going to go home and grill a steak, and I don't go home and grill a steak, it's no big deal. It's no sin. But if I vow before the Lord to you that I'm going to go home and grill a steak, and I don't grill a steak, I've sinned before the Lord. How much worse is it that these men have not only vowed before the Lord, they have vowed before the Lord to do something sinful. It's a, it's a rash vow. We have in Scripture a number of places rash vows are made. Uh, remember, remember Jephthah? I always, I always pronounce his name wrong. Remember he was one of the judges and he was out and he had a big victory and he vowed that the first thing that came out to greet him, the first person that came out to greet him when he came home, he would offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. Now maybe... If I knew my dog or my cat was going to come out first, I would make that kind of vow. No, I wouldn't. I, I do like my animal. Or we do like our dog. But, but you, can, you can see the, the, the rashness of the vow. There's no guarantee that it's going to be an animal or even a servant. In fact, the first person that rushes out to greet him is his own daughter. It was a rash vow. It was a sinful vow. Saul, King Saul, makes a vow while they are fighting the Philistines. And he says, and it says in 1 Samuel 24, and the men of Israel had been pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And of course, then Jonathan had not heard of the vow and he goes out and he eats food. And so if Saul's going to keep this vow, he should technically put Sam, uh, Jonathan to death. And the people intervene and they say, you can't kill your own son. And, and of course, then Saul sins by breaking his vow. Now, if you do vow to do something sinful, which you shouldn't do in the first place, uh, you shouldn't compound that sin by actually fulfilling the vow. But that's the point. You've sinned by breaking the vow. If you say something in a fit of anger, I'm going to punch that person. 
And then you come back and you say, well, I was just stupid for saying that. I'm not going to punch that person. No harm is done. But if you rashly vow before the Lord, I'm going to punch that person, then it becomes a catch-22. Because if you punch the person, it's a sin. And if you break the vow, it's a sin. It shows you how serious vows are before God. Again, we should, we should never vow to do sin. But it shows you here the, the depravity of these individuals. They're not only willing to break Roman law. They're not only willing to break Jewish law to punish Paul without a, without a trial. They're willing to break the law of God, both by in seeking to commit the murder and by vowing to do it. This is not zeal for the law. This is deadness in sin. You can imagine how angry there are. And there are at least, at least 40 people in on this vow initially. And then they bring in the chief priests and the, the, the elders. Not the full Sanhedrin, but they bring in the leaders. And remember how last week Paul called the high priest a whitewashed wall for ordering Paul to be struck without being found guilty first? How much more is he a hypocrite that he can be here an accessory to murder? That he can be an accomplice in this, in this plotting? It goes to show their sin and their wickedness. I've often wondered, because obviously Paul isn't killed by these people, I've often wondered how long it took them to break the vow. You know, did they, did they go two or three days? without eating, without water? Uh, did, did they go a week? I doubt, I seriously doubt that anyone followed through on never again eating and drinking and so dying from this vow that they kept. I, I think there was just such anger in here that maybe they found some sort of rationalization for breaking the vow, but, but that's the point. They're sinning and compounding sin with sin. I love here then how the plot thickens. Verse 15, they, they plot on how they're going to do this. Now you, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring down uh, to you as though you were going to determine this case more exactly and we, will, we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So now the high priests become complicit in this. They, they become not just a, well, we know a crime is going to happen and we don't try to stop it. They're, they're going to be a party in the crime. They're going to, to be the bait, if you will, in setting this up. But then notice in verse 16, Paul's nephew just happens to overhear this. Paul's nephew, someone who knows Paul, it happens to be in the right place at the right time. And this is what we can see as the providence of God. Look at verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. It's interesting and, and fun and a little bit creative to, to kind of speculate how, how did this young man hear? He's probably mid-teens, may, maybe late teens, but, but probably mid-teenager-ish um, as a young man. Maybe he's a servant of, of one of these leaders. Maybe he has a friend 
Or he knows of a friend who's involved in the plotting and so someone just kind of, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to get this Paul guy. Maybe, I've, I've even wondered if he was young enough. You know how when you're in an adult conversation and maybe this has happened to you in your home and, and, and the kids kind of walk through the room and they pick up some of the conversation and then they just kind of stop and they, they linger with their ear and they love to hear what the parents are talking about. You know, maybe this is one of those conversations where it's, it's one of these young people and they're just kind of going in and out. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe cleaning in the temple or some kind of servant and he's walking through doing his business. Uh, it's kind of like the kid who has his after school job, so to speak. And, and, and so the adults are talking and because it's a kid, you know, you don't, you don't really think much about it. Maybe they thought they were speaking low enough. I, I don't know the circumstances and we're not meant to know. But isn't it fascinating that it's Paul's own nephew? We don't know how many relatives Paul had. He obviously at least had a sister who had at least one son. But I can't imagine there were a whole lot of people floating around in and out of of the temple and in and out of the surroundings with the high priests and the leaders who would have been people who not only knew Paul, but would have talked to Paul. And then on top of this, have this close family connection. The point is, from our perspective, it looks like an accident, a a coincidence that Paul's nephew happened to be at the right place at the right time. From God's perspective, it's the providence of God. It's the sovereignty of God. And so, Paul's nephew comes and reports to Paul and and then to this commander of of the guard as well, the tribune. So look at verses 17-22. to Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell you. So they took him and they brought him to the tribune. And Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Uh, You can imagine the the centurion could have said, I'm sorry, Paul, you're you're a prisoner. I'm not going to do what you want. And yet the centurion does this, presumably uh, protecting Paul's rights as as a citizen of Rome. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? You you have to almost see this unfolding like a a spy novel. Here's your informant, the the agent who's going to tip off the the cops or the FBI, or in this case, the soldiers. And the the chief soldier, the commander, pulls him aside, takes him by the hand and and drags him over. and, And they are talking, you can imagine, very closely in a whisper, or maybe they're off in a, in a corner or in a side room and they maybe close the door. We, we don't have all these details, but, but it's private. However, Paul's nephew overheard the plotting. This, censure, this tribune is going to make sure that no one can overhear him talking to Paul's nephew. Verse 20, he tells of the plot that the Jews have agreed to kill him. Verse 21, but do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready waiting with your consent. It's kind of like saying, this, this is in your hands now. If you do what they want, they are going to kill Paul. It's up to you. What are you going to do? And he even gives that imploring there, don't be persuaded by them. Don't, don't fall for their trap. And so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. 
So he sends his informant away, but you can obviously see why he says, don't, don't repeat this. Paul's nephew doesn't want to go walking around and being like, yeah, I was the informant to the Romans. Uh, just like in the inner city, you know, they, they, uh, they mock and make fun of snitches, right? Someone who confesses or talks to the cops. And they'll kill him. They would have killed Paul's nephew if they had found out. But this, this conspiracy is building. And, and there's sort of, you know, this is why I say it's like a, a, a spy mystery. You know, it's like, okay, now we know. But don't let them know that we know because they're going to keep doing what we know they're going to do so we can plan against it. It just, the the intrigue, the excitement starts to build. But you can see, what is God doing? God is protecting Paul because God's going to keep his word. Where does Paul have to go, according to God? Rome. God is governing the course of human events here through Paul's nephew, raising him up to be at the right place in the right time. Let me just say, Two applications. First, do not tolerate evil, but speak against it. I think it's important here just a little bit, and this isn't the main point, but just notice. Notice the contrast between the high priests, the people who are supposed to be religious, who are supposed to know God's word and follow it, versus Paul's nephew. They are, it gets reported to the high priests of the conspiracy and, and they don't turn the guys in. They don't speak out against it. They don't try to stop the evil. They go along with it. Then you have this nephew, this young boy, who you can imagine how intimidating it would be to speak up at all to adults, let alone to be the one who reports someone to the cops, so to speak. I can imagine that perhaps he went to Paul first because he was a bit fearful as a young man and didn't know what to do. I don't know that for sure. But notice that he is willing to speak the truth and speak out against evil. Don't tolerate evil by letting it stand or joining in. Psalms 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Don't become complicit or participate in the evil of others. And going along with this, sometimes we assume that if God wants to stop it, well, God will do something. Imagine if Paul's nephew would have said, well, you know what, I'll just pray to God, and if God wants to protect Paul, God will do it. Sometimes we assume that because God is sovereign, we don't really have any role to play. If God wants to take care of it, he'll do it. I don't need to do anything at all. The providence of God teaches us that God often uses people. And God often puts us in places at the right time, at the right moment, because he is desirous of us to be the ones to speak up. It happens this way in evangelism. We don't go out and and say, you know what, I'm not going to share the gospel with anybody because, hey, if God wants to save people, he'll save them. We evangelize because God uses the means of the preaching of the word of the Great Commission of going out there to accomplish the eternal plans that he has. Why do we pray? Why do you pray? Because prayer is the thing that God uses to accomplish His eternal plans. 
God's plans are eternal. God doesn't change His mind. But God uses our prayers. And in praying to Him, we are submitting ourselves to Him and learning about who He is and saying, let Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In praying that God would do things, we are asking Him to act according to His name. And it puts us in right alignment with God. We don't sit there and say, well, God is sovereign, so I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to ask for things. I'm not going to ask for people to get saved. I'm not going to ask for Him to protect me because God is sovereign. In the same way, God might put you in a position where it's your responsibility to say something, to do something, to speak up in some way. Maybe it's really big and extreme, like you witness some sort of crime. Maybe it's something really little and small and unnoticed, like you put a band-aid on a child's knee. But maybe in the providence of God, that's precisely why He had you there at that moment, in that time. Have you ever had any of those experiences where you just happened to be there? You were just running late by accident and and you were at the right moment at exactly the precise time you needed to be? That's the providence of God. The second thing about God's providence is God often uses people who are insignificant. This is a kid. This is a a teenager. A, A nobody as things go. And God uses him. Some of the great heroes of the faith became heroes of the faith because of mothers or other people in their lives that nobody really ever remembers down through the course of history. J. Gresham Machen, uh, he was the guy who started Westminster Seminary. He left the the Presbyterian Church when they were going liberal and and starting to deny things about Christ and God and, and those sorts of things. And and he had actually studied in Germany at one point under very, very liberal professors. And what protected him, he writes in one of his letters, is his mother praying for him and his mother at a young age teaching him the Word of God in the Catechism. John and Charles Wesley, you probably know that name. We've sung many of their hymns. Susanna Wesley was a mother of between 17 and 19 kids, 10 of them Uh, survived. She was a mom who was raising 10 kids at any given point. You think she had her hands full? Yeah, I would imagine so. And yet she educated these men and these boys and she, she raised them in the Lord. You rarely hear of these insignificant people that in the providence of God, He uses them to, to quite literally guide and direct the course of history, raising up individuals that he's going to use. And it's not just that way with the big heroes of the faith. It's that way with everyone. God often uses people that that are insignificant in the world's eyes. And they accomplish His plan. And they accomplish His purposes. And it's not a coincidence. And it's not getting lucky. Second, this morning, I want us to notice that God in His providence uses the civil authorities to protect us. Now, we've been talking a little bit about this. There's a lot, I think, of this going on in the passage. Uh, I've mentioned this before, how God uses Paul's Roman citizenship to to protect him. And, And so God uses the means of government. Government is an agent of God, even even at its worst. Even Rome, which had this horrible Caesar, 
Government is ultimately under the authority of God and an agent to accomplish God's purposes, even when it's sinning. So the tribune prepares Paul to go to Caesar with protection. He calls two of the centurions. He says, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Go as far as Caesarea, the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to bring him safely to Felix the governor. So, so do the math here a little bit. So you got you got about 40 people involved in this conspiracy that, that were plotting to be the actual murders, murderers. How many guys does this tribune get together? So he takes 200 soldiers. So you start out 200 to 40. Who do you think is going to win? Probably the battle-hardened Roman soldiers. Then add 70 horsemen, guys on horses, the cavalry. If you know anything about ancient warfare, you know cavalry are fast, they're mobile, uh, they're often you know, skilled in battle. Typically, cavalry can beat infantry if all things being equal. So 70 horsemen could have probably easily beaten 40. So now you've got 240 sold, or 200 uh, soldiers, 70 horsemen, and on top of that, he adds 200 spearmen which, you know, you could get in formations and you put the spears way out and if the guys only have swords to come against you, your spears are longer uh, than, than the swords, depending on how you, you do it in ancient warfare. So you got 470 people. It, it's kind of like if, if we assembled a, a force today and it's, you got some infantry guys, uh, then, you, then you've, got your, um, you've got your mobile units, maybe some guys in some Hummers with some guns on the roof. Uh, and, and then on top of that, you, you've got maybe a special forces unit or a helicopter unit with you. I mean, this tribune is taking it deadly serious. This is a show of force. This is a way of saying you're not going to get to Paul. Keep in mind that although the conspiracy involved 40, perhaps perhaps the tribunal was worried that, that all of Jerusalem was going to get start, started to get stirred up. That they knew of 40, and, and I assume that, that Luke found out that it was 40th by Paul's nephew. And I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines, but, but, but assuming that Paul's nephew is the one that said, you know, it's probably about 40 people or so. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming the tribune had a sense of what the numbers were. At the same time, there had been some uprisings in the past in Jerusalem where, where literally thousands of people would come out. So maybe they're worried that, hey, if this turns into a big thing, people are gonna, we're gonna have a, not just a riot on our hands, but a, a full-fledged revolt. So they make this show of force and they, they sneak out in the middle of the night. By the way, uh, we have the tribune here giving a letter having it sent to Felix. This is the first time we find out the tribune's name, Claudius Lysisius. Some have suggested since Claudius was also the name of, of a Roman Empire emperor, perhaps this man had become a citizen under the reign of, of Claudius. And so taking his name on was, was a way of, of showing Claudius honor. But this is the name of the guy, and he sends this letter, and he basically recounts all that's been going on. He says, you know, I found that he has was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death death or imprisonment. And this kind of recounts everything that's been going on and would bring the governor Felix up to speed. But notice here that Claudius says that he found nothing deserving of death in Paul and the way he had acted. I take Claudius to be a, a good, decent, honorable person here. There are people in the world that are like that. 
Yes, of course, you know, if he's not a believer before God, he is a sinful and, and all sin is wrong and, and damnable. But, but there are also people in the world that just have integrity. There are police officers that aren't saved, but they have a measure of honor. They'll stand up for what's right. There are, are um, uh, law, not just law enforcement, but soldiers that are like that. There are countless people at all levels of, of government or in the world or in your jobs that, humanly speaking, they're decent people with integrity. And Claudius is like that. But God uses the good sinner here. What I mean by, by that is just simply what I've said. Yeah, he's a sinner. Yeah, he's not a believer. He needs the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's good in the sense of being moral. Not, not before God, but before man. He's going to uphold the law. 1 Peter 2, 13-15 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For it is the will of God that by doing good, you should be put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is an unbeliever who is in the government who praises Paul for doing good. He's not worthy of death. He doesn't deserve this. And God has raised him up at this point to be here. Imagine what could have happened if, if the Roman leader here would have been corrupt? Imagine what he, what he could have said, if, you know, this is going to take a lot of manpower and resources. And, and nobody, nobody would have to know that I would, knew there was a plot against Paul. And I could just release him. And I could let them ambush Paul on their own. I could just say, hey, he's free. It's out of, it's out of Rome's hands. And then let him get jumped and ambushed by the mob and by the violence. God sometimes uses unbelievers to accomplish his purpose, even purposes for good. You think of a a judge who makes a, a just ruling and sets an innocent man free. God often uses people we don't expect. So as we see, they go, they sneak out in the night. So the soldiers went, verse 31, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him uh, to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So I'm, I always kind of wonder as well, did, did the mob know that Paul had left? First off, it's at night. Second off, if you put Paul and the horse in the middle of this, this army that's moving out, 470 people, Maybe they didn't even know. Like, I don't think you would expect them to take a Jewish person, even though he's a Roman citizen, and, and escort him out. If they saw it going out, maybe they just thought, well, this is the army on, on maneuvers. I don't know. Maybe they did know that Paul was with it. But, but you can imagine just the force sneaking out at night on top of that, just in case so you don't get ambushed. Then they go all the way to Antipas, which I think is about halfway the, the foot soldiers turn back and the horsemen are able to ride on because the danger uh, has been passed. And then it gets there and Felix reads the letter that's delivered to him. And then he says in verse 35, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And so it all works out according to the plan and, and providence of God that Paul is kept safe at this point. The third thing this morning, and these are our applications really. Brothers and sisters, trust the providence of God. 
I honestly wrestled with saying, like, how do you preach this passage? God isn't even mentioned. Like, how do you, how do you make this passage Christ-centered? Because, because it really is just a series of events going on here. And, and Luke is telling it. We need to know it. All scripture is profitable. But, but I was looking at it this week, and early on I was thinking, what's the application here? But I think this is it. It's the providence of the hand of God because you look at verse 11 and, and Paul is told, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And there are a lot of circumstances in this passage where it would have been easy to be fearful. Take courage and trust the providence of God. Now, there are a lot of things that God doesn't promise us. God doesn't promise us how long we're going to live. God doesn't give us promises that, you know, tomorrow you'll be able to go to work. I don't know what God has in store for you. Maybe you'll get sick. I don't know. Maybe you'll have to just take a day off. Maybe you'll get a flat tire on the way to work. I, I don't know. There are a lot of things that we don't know what God is going to do. But we can trust the hand of God. God always does what is good and right according to His purposes. He is always accomplishing His will. Again, this could have been a very scary scenario for Paul. He easily could have been murdered. It easily could have been a cover-up. The Rome, there, there are so many little things that had to go right here for all of this to happen the way that it does so that Paul is protected. And God is in control of each and every one. And you and I need to remember this. God is always in control. The second thing is no matter how out of control the situation may feel to us, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8:34 and 35. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If Christ died for you, even more is is raised up and is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, or you are united to Christ as part of His body, do you think He is going to allow part of His body to be cut off from that love? But you look at, at God in the world and you look at the world and, and there's tribulation and there's distress and we, maybe you've had hardship, maybe you have a period where you've lost a job, you've been discouraged, somebody gets cancer, all of these things and we start to say to ourselves, does God really love me? Or we say, is God really in control? Or we say, I'm praying like crazy, is God really hearing my prayers. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And God in His providential hand will work all things for your good. It may not look good at the time. It may not even be something that you understand in this life how it could be used for good. But Paul says, the Word of God says, It will be for our good. The lead up 
to those verses in Romans, Romans 8, 34 and 35, is Romans 8, 28 to verse 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. How do, how do we know that God works everything in His providential hand for our good, for those who have been called according to His purpose? Look at His grace in saving you. Look at His grace in saving you. That's what Paul says, Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He he justified, He also glorified. What is fascinating here is glorification. Being with God in glory is something that is future. Are any of you in glory right now? Any hands? No? Nobody's glorified here today? Good. Because we're not. But what does Paul say? He says it in the past tense. He also glorified that these things working out to your good are so certain that God can speak of your future destiny here as if it has already been done. Why? Because God knew you. God determined before the foundations of the world, despite all of your sin, despite all of the wretchedness you would have, God said, this person is going to be my child. And He predestined you to that end. And He is conforming you to the image of Jesus to that end. He brought you to faith. He called you. You believed. You responded. You you accepted the free gift of salvation. You were justified. And you absolutely, certainly will be glorified. So between your becoming a Christian at justification and between your glorification, there may be a whole lot of things that go on that are, are very hard providences. Very dark, difficult things to understand. Paul is thrown in prison. Paul is beaten. Paul is stoned. Paul is left for dead. Paul is shipwrecked. And all of these things are the providential hand of God to bring Paul to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We don't often understand God's providence. Why does He let a loved one die? I don't know. Sometimes it's easy to see something after the fact. You say, God did that in my life because I had to learn something. Sometimes in this life we never get the answer we want. But you can trust the providence of God. He tells you, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. There's a lot of sin, a lot of chaos in our world, in our country. Even at this time, you think of all the world events that are going on. You think of everything that's happening in the country with the coming elections and the craziness and the chaos and things seem to be getting worse in our cities and other places in the country. God is still 
in control. And God has not left you as the Christian here alone. His hand of providence governs all things. And He will use even the hardest of hardships in your life for our good. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would give us wisdom and insight and and just that childlike faith that we need to trust Your hand of providence. We don't often understand why You're doing what You do. We don't often understand why You allow things to come up. Health troubles, job troubles, family troubles. But Lord, You are good and You're gracious. Help us to be grateful. Help us to trust Your hand when we don't understand it. When, we, when You do give us those insights and, and it's good things that happen through providence, Lord, I pray that we would praise Your name. That we would give thanks to You. That every good gift that we have flows from our Father above. Oh Lord, remind us of Your control over all things. We ask that You would keep us and protect us. Even as the psalmist said, Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're, you, you keep us. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort us. We thank you that you're a good and great God. We thank you that all things are in and under your control. That we don't have to fear the world. That we don't have to fear its rebellion. That we don't have to call conspiracy the things that the world is calling conspiracy and is worried about and fretting over. Let us trust you, dear God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.